Welcome again, everyone. We are so glad you are here with us today, connecting together. There are people all over the world connecting together as the body of Christ online. And we're glad that we have that technology and that ability to do that. We are starting a brand new series today called Discipleship Begins at Home. Uh, the video you just saw talked about how the children, the generations coming behind us, are going to need us to pour into them and teach them and set the example for them. And as a church, we understand that we have a part to play in that, but we want to equip you, all the adults, whether you're a parent or not a parent, all of us have influence on the generations coming behind us, and we all need to be equipped to make disciples of those coming behind us. When Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, he said to go and make disciples of all people. And, and in Acts, it tells us that he said it this way, begin in Jerusalem, and then go to Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. Well, I love that he said that it started in Jerusalem because that's where they were. They needed to begin right where they were. When we hear the words, go and make disciples, sometimes we mistakenly think that means we've got to go somewhere else to start doing that. You don't have to go anywhere to start that process of making disciples. You can start right where you are now, in your home, in your office, in your community, in your neighborhood. We start where we are. And so this series will be about equipping us to do the things we need to do to disciple those generations coming behind us. What we've seen in the statistics recently is this that the church is in decline, especially among those younger generations that are coming behind us. And so instead of fretting about it and blaming everybody else about what's happening, maybe we need to refocus and get better equipped to do the job God told us to do all along, which is to begin the discipleship process right at home. Today's message, we're going to begin this series with a message called Demonstrating Priorities. How it begins with us showing those generations coming behind us what should be the main priorities, the top priorities of their lives. In this series, I'm going to be looking at examples in scripture of men and women, parents, some are parents, some are not, but who had the opportunity to pour into generations coming behind them and set a good example for them. And we're going to learn from some that did a good job with that and some that didn't do such a good job with that. And then how we can take those lessons, both the good and the bad, and apply them to our lives. We're going to start today with a guy named Abraham. And we're going to look at the account in Genesis 22. I'm going to take a few moments to remember the story that we're going to be focusing on. And then we'll close with three very quick lessons about how we can demonstrate priorities in our homes, in our communities, in our lives that will help disciple other people. Genesis 22, beginning with verse 1, it says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, first of all, Abraham had to be shocked that God was asking him to do this. It seems like as we read the scripture that it comes almost out of the blue, like no warning, no preparation. Just one day he says to Abraham, take your son. And this son was a promised son. This was the son through whom God said he was going to bless all the nations. And now he's telling Abraham, go and sacrifice that son of yours. It says that in verse uh, five, verse three, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. 
When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place he had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. I want you to notice the plural that Abraham uses in that statement. He says, I and the boy will go over there and do what God told us to do. But then he uses the plural, then we will come back to you. Now, the fact that he uses the plural gives us some indication of the faith of Abraham, of the trust of Abraham, and of the priorities in Abraham's life. He trusts God. He wants to do what God tells him to do. That's his top priority. But he trusts God enough to know that even when it's something he doesn't understand, even when he doesn't know why, he needs to do this. What purpose is really going to serve yet? He's still willing to make top priority obedience to God. Now, there have been some debate here he, on, on Isaac's age. Uh, he says, I and the boy will go over here. The word translated boy doesn't indicate to us exactly what age that his son is at this time. Some scholars have dug into this. They've speculated that it's certain that Isaac is not, not an infant. He's not, uh, you know, three or four years old. He's a little bit older than that, but he's probably not a teenager. And here's the reasoning for that. Had Isaac already been a teenager, this wouldn't have been much of a sacrifice. <laughs> Obviously, that's not true. I'm only joking. Please don't send any emails. Uh, we're not sure what age he is, but we do know that he's old enough to understand what's going on. Listen to verse 6 and following. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now that tells us something about Isaac's age and understanding. He has been involved in worship before. And the worship of offering sacrifice to God. He knows what's supposed to happen here. He knows that there's supposed to be an animal. And he knows probably the requirements of the law that the animal be without spot or blemish. It'd be one that would be pleasing to God. And so he's concerned. We're right here getting ready to do this, but we don't have the animal. We've got everything else we need. So, so we know Isaac has been raised by his father that a priority in his father's life was making sure they worshiped God appropriately, that they did the right things to honor God in their lives. He's been raised with that, so he knows exactly what needs to happen. In verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, which again tells us that Isaac had to have been cooperative with his father. He knows that his father is doing something that he's being led by God to do and he's cooperating. There's no way Abraham could have forcefully bound his son by himself there. So his son had to have been cooperative. So he bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Can you imagine the relief that Abraham was feeling when he had taken that knife and he was about to cut the throat of his son the way they would prepare normally the animal for sacrifice and the angel stopped him right in the middle of it. Can you imagine the relief on Isaac's face 
when he saw that his father was stopping and not following through with this sacrifice. The angel went on to say, don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What a testimony of faith for Abraham. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think even for a moment there was any doubt in Isaac's mind as to what the top priority was for his father? That his father loved God more than anything else. That his father put God first above everything else. You see, Abraham was demonstrating something that's vitally important. If we are going to be effective in that process of making disciples, those that we're trying to disciple have to see in us the evidence that the top priority in our lives first is God. That we put him above everyone and everything. Isaac did not doubt his father's love for him. That's not the point. He knew his father loved him, but he knew by this action that his father loved God even more. I'm afraid that in our culture today, children have become uh, so vitally important in families that they have risen to the top now where they have first priority over everything else. The Bible doesn't teach us not to love our children. It teaches us clearly to love our children. But one of the best things we can do for our children is teach them they're not first in our lives. God is. God comes before everything and everyone else, even our children. Now, the amazing thing is, is when we put God first, here's what happens. We end up being a greater blessing to our children than we could ever have been if we put them first ahead of God. So I want to talk today in the remaining moments about three practical ways that we can demonstrate to the generations coming behind us that God is our top priority. The first one is this. We can demonstrate that by our attitude toward the church. Our attitude toward the church. In our culture today, there seems to be this movement that has developed that I like to call the church bashing movement. Everyone is so critical of the church. Everyone tears down and criticizes what churches are doing or trying to do or how they're doing it. It seems to be a sport almost to criticize the church. Don't you think the young people coming behind us are hearing that? Don't you think they're being affected by that? And here's the problem with that. The scripture makes it clear. Christ loves the church. He loves the church so much that he gave himself up for the church. That's how valuable the church is to Christ. If we are disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, and he loves the church like that, what should our attitude be toward the church? We ought to love the church the way Christ loves the church. And here's the thing about the way Christ loves the church. He loves the church blemishes and all. See, he's the one who built the church. And he used people to build the church. I love that during this time of quarantine, we've been reminded so vividly that the church is not the building. It never has been. It was never supposed to be. It's always been about the people. Christ built the church through people. The people make up the church. Here's the thing about people that Christ knows very well. We mess up. We make mistakes. The Bible calls it sin. 
and it makes it clear that all of us have sinned. So he builds the church with imperfect, sinful people, and yet he still loves the church, even though it's made up of people with all these faults, all of these shortcomings, all of these failures in their lives. Paul spoke to that in Ephesians 5, and he's talking about marriage, but he makes it clear he's mainly talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. Here's what he says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church. Listen to how he describes it without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, Christ died and bled and died on the cross. He paid the price for sin on the cross so that we could be washed clean and presented to him as his bride, the church, without spot or blemish. It's not because we're perfect. It's because of the perfect cleansing of his sacrifice. And Christ loves the church. And when he sees us, he doesn't see the blemishes, the spots, the imperfections. He sees us cleansed and restored and made new by his sacrifice. So he loves the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He's talking to them about an offering they were, had promised to give and they hadn't followed through on it like they needed to. But he says this to, to encourage them. He says, therefore, show these men, in verse 24, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. He says that your support of the church financially is one way you demonstrate your love for the church. Now, I want to brag on some of our Lakeshore members for just a moment here. During this time where we haven't been able to meet together uh, like we normally would, we've asked people to still keep uh, supporting the church financially, keep giving your offerings and your tithes, doing online, uh, mailing your checks or, or bring it by the office, however you can do it. And so many of you have stepped up and been so loving and faithful and generous during this time. It has enabled us to keep functioning, to keep doing all the ministries. We haven't had to cut back on any ministry or any outreach that we've been doing as a church. That speaks highly of your love for the church. But we, God wants everyone to love the church the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And Hebrews 10, verse 23 to 25, is another reminder of the priority we need to give to the church. He said this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some of us are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, it sounds almost contradictory that I would use this verse when we can't meet together in the building. But this verse doesn't say, don't ever give up meeting together in one building altogether. That's not what it says. It says, do not give up meeting together. Right now, the best way for us to do that is online and connecting through, through technology, through our life groups and things like that. And, and the point is this, if you love the church, you won't get disconnected from it even when we have the challenging times that we're having right now. You will make it a priority to still keep connecting with the church. That's not the building, remember, that's the people who are disciples of Jesus like you are. We can still not forsake the meeting together. We can make it a priority with our families, with our friends to still connect with the body of Christ in the ways that we can now and the ways that best honor Christ and still show love to our neighbors. And I'm so thankful that so many of you are being faithful with that as well. Well, another principle we see here that we can demonstrate the priority with is this. We can demonstrate it by the atmosphere we have in our homes. 
What's going on in our homes right now? More people are at home together for longer periods of time. Some are still going to work at an office or somewhere like that, but a lot of people are having to work from home, so we've got more time together in the home. What are we doing with that time? I'll tell you what we should be doing. We should be doing what we should have been doing all along. We should not have had to change this part of what we're supposed to be doing. When God was instructing his people through Moses as they were going into the land that he was going to give them, in Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 1, he says this to his people. These are the commands, decrees, and laws of the Lord your God directing me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. So that, all right, he wants them to teach this, so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. So he says, okay, you're going to go into this land of promise. Here's what you need to be doing. You need to be teaching, demonstrating the priority of God, God's word, God's decrees in such a way that not only will your children be discipled by it, but even their children after them will be discipled by it so that they honor God and their generation in their lives. You see, with the time that we've got with our families, whether we're quarantined or not, we need to be making sure we demonstrate that priority of the teachings of God, how valuable they are. He went on to say this, Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the, the God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So it starts there. If we're going to disciple others, where do we have to put God's word? In our own hearts. Then he says, when they're in your heart, here's what you do next. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Saturate the generations coming behind us with the teachings of God, with his word, with his scripture. We want to make sure we are pouring into discipling others, not with our own ideas, not with our own uh, precepts, not with the world's teaching of what they think life ought to be like. We need to be saturating them. They're going to get enough of that. They need to get from us the pouring into their hearts and minds the teachings of God. And whether you're a parent or not, you can still do this. Grandparents can do this for grandchildren. And Aunts and uncles can do this for nieces and nephews. And we can all do this for those around us that we have influence over as a coach or a teacher or whatever our role is in our day-to-day -day lives. We could be pouring in, setting that example, impressing on others coming behind us, impressing on our children, the generations after our children, through our children, the teachings of God. In Ephesians 6, Beginning with verse 1, Paul is giving some more instructions for the family. And he says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And parents love that verse. In fact, I, I can remember quoting this verse often to my own children because I wanted them to obey. But, but he didn't stop there because it's not just the responsibility of the children here. The parents have a responsibility too. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So we need to teach the children that the value God says with obeying their parents is that it will bless their lives. But he's saying it will bless their lives if the parents are teaching them the right things. He went on to say in verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 
One of the things I, I'm really puzzled by and concerned by in our culture today is how much we are expecting children to raise themselves, to, to make their own decisions. In fact, we're even trying to say they should be empowered to make critical decisions in their lives while they're still children. Do you believe that some parents are actually saying my child should be able to decide if they're going to be a girl or a boy or not, no matter what they were born to be? You see, God's plan does not allow for children to make those decisions. That's not how he designed the family to work. Those important things about life that children need to know, he designed it so they would be born into a family where parents would teach them the things that God wants them to know about their lives and how life should be lived. And the scripture says that God knit them together in their mother's room to be who he designed them to be. And so parents need to step up and be parents teach the children, take the responsibility God gives us. And I know some people are saying, well, it says the fathers need to do that. And it is great when a father is present and can do that. But even in a home where the father is not present, listen to me, ladies, you can take this responsibility to join in that effort too. The church wants to come around you and help you, but you still have that responsibility in the home. And 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, I love this verse because it tells us about a generational uh, time where the discipleship took place where the faith was passed down it's, Paul says to Timothy I'm reminded of your sincere faith that word sincere means pure right not not distorted in any way it's the truth I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and I'm persuaded now lives in you also it doesn't mention any men in that chain of discipleship. And yet the women were able to still pass along that faith from one generation to the next into Timothy as a young man so that he was now walking by that faith that they had passed down. The church wants to support you in that, encourage you in that, but everybody in their homes need to take the responsibility that that's where it begins. Discipleship begins at home. Well, the third principle I want to close with is this. We can demonstrate our priorities by our adherence to God's word ourselves. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't stop there. And oftentimes we stop there with the Great Commission. We've got to get them baptized. We've got to get them saved, we say. And that's just the first step in the Great Commission is to bring them to Jesus. Then there's a step after that that's an ongoing process, he says in verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He said, friends, bringing them to Jesus is, is important. It's vital. You've got to start there. But once you bring people to Jesus, there is an ongoing responsibility to teach them to be obedient to all that Jesus has commanded. Where does that start? It starts by our example. Are we being obedient? To the teachings of Jesus. You see, children do learn a lot from teaching. They learn a lot from lessons that, that can be taught, but they also learn a lot from watching others who are older than them. That has a huge impact on their lives. And so if we're trying to tell them they need to follow Jesus, the generations coming behind us, you need to make him more of a priority in your lives, then they need to see us being obedient to the teachings of Jesus. One of the things that's really important is that we not just take them to church and get them into the programs there. Those are good steps. We want to help you with that. When they come to Lakeshore, if they're in our programs, if they're connected to our ongoing teaching processes that we do, they're going to hear the truth from God's word. But we only have them for a short time. 
what they see and hear at home and at school and all the other environments they're in, they've got a lot more time there. And that's going to have a huge impact on what they believe and how they live. And so it becomes more important than ever for us in the homes, for us in the schools, for us in those environments as adults to be setting the example of obedience to God's word. That we trust God and we trust what he teaches enough to actually do what he says. Here's the goal. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Can we say to those coming behind us, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Friends, we have to be following the example and the teachings of Jesus if we want to be effective in discipling others that are coming behind us. So if you need to make that step, make that decision to become a disciple of Jesus yourself, to come under his authority and his teaching, we want to help you with that today. We have people available. If you are watching on our website, you can uh, comment there in the contact box. Click on that. Give us your information. We'll follow up with you there. If you're watching on YouTube, you can just comment in the, in the uh, chat section there. Just comment that you would like for somebody to follow up with you, and we will do that uh, in the very near future so that we can help you through that process of making that commitment to come and follow Jesus. Some people I know, older adults may be thinking, I've blown it. I've waited too long. It's too late for me to be that influence or that impact. Let me tell you something. It's never too late. If there's life and breath in your body, you can start right where you are. Christ can make you brand new and you can begin today starting to have that impact on those coming behind you that God wants you to leave behind you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today we've been reminded that we need to be demonstrating the priorities that you want us to demonstrate in our lives. I thank you for the example of Abraham and how he demonstrated that so powerfully to his son Isaac. And you're not asking us to necessarily do something like that, but you are asking us to demonstrate that you are first in our lives. Father, help us to demonstrate that consistently. Forgive us where we have failed or come short in the past. Thank you for the new newness of your mercies every day that we could even start right now brand new demonstrating that you have become that priority for us it's in jesus name that we pray amen